Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Man, thank you, Chris. Good morning. We'll be continuing our Christmas series today in John chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, verses 9 through 13 this morning. I don't know about you, but Christmas is my favorite time of year. Uh, one thing that I especially love about the Christmas season are all of the Christmas lights. As far back as I can remember, uh, my family always put lights on our house, and one of our favorite Christmas traditions was driving around our town and looking at all of the lights. And then uh, when I was in high school, I started taking charge of the lights in our house, and I just kept adding more and more each year until one year we were having some electrical issues and uh, had to kind of pull back after that. I was thinking about Christmas lights in connection with uh, our series in John 1 because light is this huge theme for Jesus, a metaphor for Jesus all throughout the chapter. Um, And so I was wondering if Christmas lights were originally a way that people celebrated that Jesus is the true light, the light of the world. Unfortunately, nobody really knows who first started using Christmas lights. Uh, What we do know is that Christmas trees and putting candles on Christmas trees was something that started in Germany in the 15 or 1600s. And then when electricity was discovered and indoor lights were created, it just made sense to make the transition from candles, which were obviously dangerous on a tree, uh, to Christmas lights. There is one story that claims uh, that Martin Luther was the first person to cut down a tree, bring it inside for Christmas, and put candles on it to celebrate Jesus as the light of the world, but there really isn't any evidence to support whether or not that's a true story or just a myth that somebody made up. So Christmas lights might be a way to uh, remind us that Jesus is the light of the world, the true light. Maybe they just look pretty, um, but either way, Christmas lights became and remain this popular Christmas tradition. So we've had our own house for a couple years now, and of course, uh, no surprise, we put Christmas lights up. And a couple weeks ago, after we had put the lights up, we took Imogene outside to see the lights. And uh, she was too little last Christmas to really appreciate the Christmas lights. But when we went outside this year, she just kept looking around at the house with this sense of awe and wonder on her face. And And she wanted to get in her swing, even though it was dark and cold outside, and she was swinging, and she's just looking up at the tree, and there's snowflakes in the tree, and back at the house, and she just was so excited about the lights. And on one level, there wasn't really much reason for Imogene to be excited about these lights. She's seen plenty of lights in her short life, but of course, Christmas lights aren't just ordinary lights. She's even seen Christmas lights on TV and movies, Christmas movies or Christmas shows, but there was something different when she saw them in person and experienced them for herself. And she saw me putting the lights up during the daytime, so she knew to expect something odd on our house, but until it was dark out, they didn't have any sort of effect on her. These Christmas lights led Imogene to wonder and amazement because they were brighter than any other light she had seen. 
She could experience them with her own eyes, and when everything else was dark at night, these lights really stood out and struck her with wonder and awe. I think this scene is a helpful depiction for what John has in mind when he's talking about Jesus as this true light that has come into the world. John isn't saying that Jesus is like a nightlight or just like an ordinary lamp. Jesus is the one true light. And the reason Jesus is the true light is similar to the reason that Imogene was marveling at our Christmas lights is because the world is dark and in need of Jesus's hopeful light. It's because Jesus can be received personally and experienced by everyone, not only as something we see others experiencing, and because Jesus's light is better than any other form of light that our world offers. So as we see Jesus as the true light this morning, let's uh, posture ourselves in the same way that Imogene was when she saw uh, our Christmas lights, excitement and wonder and awe. So those are some of the things I want us to see this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in. We'll start in uh, John 1. I'll just read verse 9 to begin. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So the first thing we see here is that uh, John calls Jesus the true light and that he is the true light because the world is full of darkness and in need of light. The fact that John is writing all of this about light shining in darkness, light coming into the world, and later calling Jesus the light of the world, all of that assumes that the world is uh, a dark place that needs light. There'll be no reason for John to write anything special about Jesus as the light if there wasn't darkness present and a light was needed. In fact, John makes this point explicit because for John, when he uses that word world, it has a negative connotation to it. John isn't just saying that Jesus came into the world as in the physical place where we live, although that's true, and he emphasizes that later in this chapter that we'll look at on Friday. What he's saying here when he says world is that Jesus has come into the place of brokenness the place of darkness, the place that's in rebellion against God, a place that's in need of light. And I think that's a good place for us to start this morning because if we're going to receive Jesus as light and recognize Jesus as good news, then we first have to know that light is even needed, that we need light. For many of us, that's not a hard thing to do. Uh, The darkness of the world is all around us in the form of sickness or death or addiction Anxiety or depression, unpaid bills, unrealized dreams, uh, busted pipes. That's what my parents are dealing with this morning. It got really cold really quick. But for others, maybe you don't feel the darkness of the world very often. I think it's an important point for us to stop here because in our modern world, we usually do everything that we possibly can to push down and suppress any darkness in our lives. We have this incredible power to fill our lives with work and family and entertainment so that we don't even have to face the reality of the darkness of our world. And so when we do this, we fill our lives with fun things to do, and any free second that we have, we're scrolling on our phones, we don't even recognize that the world is broken and that our lives are all filled with hurt. But if we do this, if we just totally cover over the darkness we aren't going to realize our need for light either. And Jesus won't be good news to us. We just like imaging seeing those lights on our house during the day. And I had plugged them in to make sure they were working, but she just didn't really care because it was light out outside. 
If we pretend our lives are perfect and everything is okay, then what Jesus brings to us that we'll see later won't look like anything special for us. So if we want to understand why Jesus is the true light of the world, first we need to be willing to face the reality that our our world and our lives, so there's so much good, are filled with a lot of darkness and brokenness as well. Then once we acknowledge that darkness, the natural response then is to start looking for light. Just like when you walk into a dark room and you look for the light switch. So that brings us back to John 1. Not only does John assume the world is full of darkness, but he also assumes that there's going to be other sources of false light in the world trying to light up our darkness, but unable to do so. We see that because John calls Jesus the true light, which again assumes that there are false lights. So what are some of these false lights? Well, back in verse 8 from our text last week, it says John the Baptist was a false light. He was not the light. He was simply bearing witness to the light. But some people had mistaken John the Baptist, who was the, the messenger for Jesus, the message. And of course, we face the same temptation today, don't we? Uh, We are tempted to look to a particular church or a specific celebrity preacher or a certain book or denomination or specific theology, and these things aren't bad, but we can so easily mistake them for the true light. And so when that happens, the, the way that the church does their service or the things a certain pastor says or the things a certain book claims become the ultimate things that we shape our lives around. When in reality, they're supposed to be pointing us to the true light, the gospel message about Christ. Another way we can fall victim to this temptation is by making it all about ourselves. So our church, ourselves, what we believe becomes what we hold out to people and ask them to receive instead of Jesus and his death and resurrection for you. Another way that false lights show up in our world are all of the many answers to darkness that the world offers to us. Uh, This word true that John uses here shows up elsewhere in his gospel, uh, specifically when Jesus calls himself the true bread, the true vine, and he calls his father the only true God. And sometimes this word true means genuine or real, as in God is the one genuine or real God. All other gods are fake. They're not real. But oftentimes this word true means something more like ultimate. So for example, when Jesus says, I'm the true bread, he's not saying I'm the only bread. I'm the only source of any satisfaction in life. He's saying I'm the ultimate source of satisfaction in life. He says the same thing about the true vine. I'm not the only thing that gives you life or purpose, but I'm the ultimate source of life. And I think that's part of this meaning of true light here in verse 9. John isn't saying Jesus is the only thing good in this world that can give you any happiness or joy. There are many sources of light in our world, some really good sources. But what John's saying is Jesus is the ultimate source of light. Just a few examples of that. Uh, Netflix or watching a game on TV might provide good and needed rest for a few moments in the evening. And we're thankful for rest and relaxation. But we still have to wake up the following day and prove ourselves to people over again and work hard at our jobs again or study hard in school or, or parent as well as we can to raise the best kids we can. So Netflix or sports provides a little bit of rest, and we're grateful for those things. But Jesus provides ultimate rest. 
Because in him, we don't have to prove ourselves to others or to God. In him, we work hard in our jobs or at school or to parent, but not because we think we're in control. We know God's in control. We're just working hard to be faithful to him. So something like Netflix is a light, a good light in our world that provides a break at the end of our day. But Jesus is the true light that provides ultimate rest from our striving. Relationships or jobs provide meaning for our lives because they give us a sense of purpose, something to do. They give us a sense of joy. But relationships can easily fracture or be ended. Jobs can easily be lost or become unfulfilling. But Jesus provides ultimate meaning because in him we have a restored relationship with God that can never be broken. He's invited us into the mission of bringing light to his dark world, and so he gives us purpose in every area of our lives that will never be taken away. There are many good lights in our world bringing meaning to life, and we're thankful for those lights, but only Jesus brings unshakable, ultimate meaning. So apart from Christ, there are many good things trying to light up the darkness of our lives. There's bad things as well, but none of these things can do so ultimately. All of these things let us down at some point, or they don't quite do the job well enough. They lose their appeal after a while. That's why another light was needed. The true light, the one who wouldn't let us down, or the one who we wouldn't lose his appeal. And John says, he's coming. This is the one that the world had been waiting for. Uh, When John's writing this, he's probably thinking about several verses from Isaiah. We've been uh, reading them the past couple weeks. But one of those is is Isaiah 9, which Chris read last Sunday. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Then it goes on with the famous passage, For us a child is born. To us a child is born. Also Isaiah 49.6, which says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So Jesus is this one who's come. He's the light of the nations who would bring salvation not just to Israel, but to all people. He's the one to light up the darkness of their lives, one they've been waiting thousands of years for. And John says, this one, he's here. He's finally here. That brings us to our second point, and that's that Jesus can be received personally and fully. Just like the Christmas lights on our house are more exciting to imaging than anything she sees on TV, we are able to experience Jesus personally, and that's a major reason why he is the true light. If true light was having enough money to never worry about money, or having a perfectly fit and healthy body that never aged, or having a huge family that never fought and always got along, then none of us would be able to actually experience true life. We'd see it on Instagram, we would want it, but it could never be ours. But part of what makes Jesus the true light is that he came to everyone, and he invites everyone to receive him. Look back with me at uh, John 1, verses 10 through 13 this time. John says, He was in the world, that is the true light, Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says, Jesus created the world, 
Yet when he entered into it, the world didn't receive him as its rightful king. They rejected him. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was. And ultimately, as we know, they killed him. It's this sad and tragic tone. But then John shifts gears in verse 12 and he says, but, but to all who did receive him. I like how some of the older translations say, as many as received him, as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These two verses right here, some these verses are what uh, this whole chapter hinges on. John 1 is this incredible chapter where John tells us that Jesus is the word of God. He's God's revelation to the world. Not only that, but he's God himself, that he is the creator of the world, that he's true light, that he came down to earth to push back darkness and give us hope, to reveal God to mankind, and to make us children of God who will live with him forever in eternity. It's incredible news. It's an incredible description of this person named Jesus. And then right in the middle of this chapter, John says, some people received him and some people didn't. And those same two options that John is writing about are the only same two options that are available to us today. Receive Jesus or don't receive Jesus. There isn't an, another option, but honestly, I think a lot of us live as if there is another option. Uh, just enough Jesus to make sure that if Jesus is who he says he is, I'll be on his side, but not too much Jesus that I actually have to change anything about my life to accommodate him or his teaching. It's kind of this middle option, but the Bible doesn't give us that option. John says some people received him, some people didn't. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, verse 12 tells us that receiving and believing in the name of Jesus are the same thing. To receive is to believe. And one thing that means is that our only job to receive Jesus' light is to receive and believe. We don't earn Jesus, we don't produce Jesus, we don't deserve Jesus even, yet he offers himself freely and the only condition is receive me. John unpacks that a bit more in verse 13. He says, becoming children of God doesn't happen naturally, it doesn't happen by our will, it happens by God's will and God's power alone. Another thing that receiving and believing means is that we all have to receive Jesus, the person, personally. John is teaching us here two very important things about believing in Jesus and receiving his light and becoming a Christian. One is that simply believing in a generic God isn't enough to experience Jesus's light. And two is that you have to receive Jesus personally for yourself. No one else can do it for you. So the fact that John is asking us to believe in a name is really significant because names are personal. They're attached to people. And all throughout the New Testament, we see this word name attached to God, and usually it's talking about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the two most personal persons of the Trinity. It's never just a generic mention of God, and I think why that's important is because if you want to receive Jesus, receive the light that he brings to our dark world, then you actually have to receive Jesus. It's not enough to merely believe in God or to, to pray to some cosmic deity. It's the message of the Bible is receive Jesus, the specific person who's come for you. Uh, the other thing that's significant about receiving is that it means you have to do it yourself. 
your pastor, your church, your parents can't force you to receive Jesus. We don't just receive Jesus because we're around others who have received Jesus. John tells us that Jesus came into this world and made his light available to all people without condition except that we would make the decision to receive. Nobody can do that for you. Let's turn now and look at the result of receiving Jesus. And it's the last part of verse 12. It says, For those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. So the last point I want us to see is that Jesus is the true light because his light is better and brighter than all other lights. Receiving Jesus means gaining the right to become a son or daughter of the creator and king of the universe. What could be better than that? Now you might say, well, that sounds great, but what does that actually mean? Well, in the New Testament, becoming a child of God is connected to receiving all of the incredible blessings and promises that God gives to his people. And there are two that are specifically emphasized and connected with this adoption into God's family. And that's forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let's take forgiveness of sins first. It might not be a popular thing to acknowledge in our world today, but what the Bible teaches is that every single one of us has turned away from God and sinned against him. That doesn't mean that we're all terrible people who are the worst person that we could possibly be. But what it does mean is that even the best among us fails to live up to God's perfect standard. And the punishment for sin that we see all throughout scripture is death. And so, therefore, because of our sin, what we deserve is death, both spiritually and physically. But Jesus solves this problem for us by giving us redemption through his perfect life and sacrificial death on our behalf. Ephesians 1 uh, connects our adoption, our forgiveness this way. Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So God's predestined us for adoption, to become sons and daughters of his, and part of that adoption is redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And the way to receive forgiveness and adoption is through Jesus alone. There's no hope for forgiveness of sins apart from Christ. Even if we're able to have the best possible life that we could ever have here on earth, we would still have one major problem. Our sin has separated us from God. And the result of our sin that separated us from God is death. And so that leads us to our second greatest problem. What happens to us after we die? We all have this longing for life after death and for life after death to be better than our life here on earth. But most of us also have a fear that either that life after death doesn't exist, or if it does, I'm not going to make it there. And the light that Jesus brings to our dark world is the best light that anyone could possibly bring because not only does he offer us hope that there is an incredible future available to us, he also offers us assurance that if you receive him, it doesn't matter what you do, it matters what he's done, and you'll be there. Look with me at a little bit of a lengthier passage, First uh, Peter uh, 1, verses 3 through 7. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperished, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's so much good stuff in that passage, but I just want to draw out a couple things uh, connected between adoption and eternal life. And the first is just that connection. Peter says we're born again to an inheritance. So there's adoption language, born again to a new family, a new future. And the inheritance that he's talking about is clearly eternal life. He says it's, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. So receiving Jesus means becoming a child of God, and becoming a child of God means receiving a future inheritance of never-ending, never-boring, perfect life with God. And the second thing I want to point out from this passage is that we are able to have this hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is significant because it gives us a grounding for our hope in eternal life. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we have reason to believe that we, as his brothers and sisters, will be raised from the dead as well. And of course, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who testified to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, raised. And so Jesus' resurrection is both a, a foretaste of what we'll experience in our own resurrection and a guarantee that we don't, have to, we don't have to wonder whether or not we'll be there because Jesus has said, if you're in me, you will be with me in heaven. The last thing from this passage is that our eternal life with God is going to be so incredible that even our suffering here on earth will seem worth it once we've experienced heaven with God. That's why Peter is able to say that in this, in your future inheritance, you rejoice even while grieved by various trials. The only way Peter can say that is if our future is so incredible that it makes up for all of the suffering and brokenness that we experience here on earth. Eternal life is only good news if it's real and not just something that we're hoping for gullibly. If it's available to us and not just something that other people will experience but not us. And if it's so amazing that it makes up for everything that we have to go through here on earth. And that's exactly what God promises to those who receive Jesus and receive adoption into his family. Did anyone watch the, uh, the spooky Netflix series this fall, Midnight Mass? Uh, if you didn't see it, the series takes place on a small island. There's a hundred or so residents. And it was a really interesting story because it had major religious themes all throughout the story. The basic plot is that this town has a very old priest and he goes to Israel on a trip and he uh, becomes ill while he's there and doesn't return home. And so the Catholic Church sends a much younger priest to fill in for him. And as soon as that, the new priest gets there, strange things start happening on the island. Uh, people are seeing things moving around in the dark. There's um, a girl who is paralyzed who now starts walking. There's an older woman with dementia who not only is healed, but actually starts aging backwards. It gets younger. 
Um, and for the first half of the series, the show seems to be making this case that Christianity gives people hope in the midst of their suffering. And this kind of positive view of Christianity hits a climax right in the middle of the show in this memorable scene where you have two people who have both experienced incredible suffering in their lives. There's a woman who uh, grew up without a, a father. Her mother was abusive, and she's just suffered a miscarriage. And then this man, who's about her same age, who left the island after high school, became successful in the finance world, and then killed someone while driving drunk and spent several years in prison. So these two people are sitting on a couch and they take turns telling each other what they believe happens after death. And the man goes first and he says that basically he believes that when you die, that'll be it. Uh, You'll cease to think about anything or feel anything. You'll just go into the ground and become one with the universe once again. Then the woman goes next, and she gives this beautiful description of heaven. She says that uh, when we die, we'll return home, that we'll, and we'll feel incredible love in the presence of God, that we'll be surrounded by loved ones who have passed away before us, that our bodies will be perfect without any sickness or disability or aging, that there's nothing but joy for all eternity in the presence of God. And she even ends it by saying what Peter says, that looking forward to heaven is the way we endure hardship here on earth. And the man is moved to tears, and the only thing he can say is, I really hope you're right. Because he doesn't have any hope in his view of death. And at this point in the show, I was really confused, because it it seemed like Netflix was using this, their signature fall show to make a positive case for Christianity. Uh, But from then on out, the show started to change and began to paint this different picture of Christianity. And I'll spare you all the, the bizarre details, but... Uh, basically, the younger priest ended up being the older priest, um, that he was changed into his best self by an angel, and he offers the townspeople the same experience if they drink his blood during communion. And everyone agrees to have this experience, and we're not planning on doing that here, don't worry. Uh, Everyone agrees to have this experience, and it turns into chaos, and everyone goes crazy and ends up killing each other because they need more blood to continue to live this way. And it's crazy, and it really wasn't a great show, but it becomes very obvious by the end of the show that the point wasn't that Christianity gives people hope. It's that Christianity gives people false hope and leads people to be gullible and selfish and hateful to others. And then here's how the show ends. You've got the same woman who gave us this incredible picture of heaven earlier, and she's sitting on the beach. The sun is rising. The town is burning down behind her. The townspeople are singing a hymn. It's, it's eerie, but it's also beautiful. It's supposed to be this aesthetically moving scene. And then she gives us her new belief about what happens after death. And she says that death is still a return, but it's not a return to heaven. It's just a return to the earth. She describes, similarly to what the man described, that uh, after death we just cease to exist and we're buried in the ground. We become one with the universe once again. She says, this is how the show ends, she says, there is no life, there is no death. Life is just a dream, it's a wish, and I'm all of it. I'm everything, I'm all, I am that I am. Which is an obvious echo of the Old Testament there. And you can tell from the aesthetics of the scene that this is supposed to be this incredibly hope-filled ending to the show. No more wishful thinking about a made-up place called heaven, but instead real, genuine hope 
that when you die, you'll be absorbed back into the universe and become one with everyone once again. And when the show ended, I, I looked over at Maddie and I said something to the effect of, what a bunch of garbage. Because what this character was saying and the way the producer made us want to feel were totally at odds with one another. This view of death, the absorption back into the oneness of the universe, isn't good news at all. There's no hope in that. Returning to the ground might be comforting to this fictional TV character, but that's not comforting to someone who really grew up without a father, with an abusive mother, and who's just suffered a miscarriage. This view of death isn't good news for someone who's got the best life they could possibly ask for either, because if that's you, well then you better enjoy it, because at any moment it'll be over and you'll never enjoy it again. It's not good news for the best life, and it's not good news if you've faced more suffering than anyone else has faced. I don't understand how the producers of the show think that this view of death is good news for anyone, but honestly, it's the best that a worldview without Christ can do. I think the producers thought they were showing us just how gullible Christians are to believe in heaven. But in reality, I think what they showed us was just how gullible non-Christians are to believe that a world without Christ has any hope whatsoever. Without Christ, there's no hope beyond this life. So you better make the most of this life. And if it's not what you hoped it would be, sorry. At Christmas, though, we get to celebrate the fact that Jesus, the light of the world, came to us in order to make a way for us to be adopted into God's family. And a part of adoption into God's family means life after death that isn't just going to cause us to forget all of the suffering and brokenness in our lives, but in which God is actually going to redeem those things and make them new. Eternal life for the Christian, for those who have received Jesus, is how that female character originally described it. It's a place of perfect peace and joy where we experience restored relationships and have no fear that they'll ever be broken again. Where we have a perfect version of our bodies and there's no threat of aging or disease or disability. Where we'll never feel alone or sad or bored and where we'll see Jesus face to face and dwell in his presence forever. And that's good news whether you have a perfect life or whether your life's falling apart. It's good news if all your bills are paid or if there's unpaid bills. It's good news for a miscarriage or for addiction or dementia or the death of a loved one or for broken relationships or for any of the darkness of our world. And that's why Jesus is the true light. He's the only one who can lighten up our darkness fully. Of course, if it's not true, then it is just wishful thinking, but we believe that it is true. That hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus raised from the dead testify to it. That thousands of years of church history testifies to the fact that Jesus is alive and that we'll be with him someday. So as we seek to apply this to our lives, let's do so both personally and missionally as well. So personally, let me just ask you, have you received Jesus? If not, we would love to talk with you about what that means. If you have any questions, you can ask us after the service. If you have received Jesus, are you looking to him for light and resting in his grace this Christmas? And missionally, as uh, we move into a new year and as we see our families at Christmas, and even as we look forward to moving our church downtown next year, let's remember that what we have to offer our world is Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. 
But what we do have to offer in Jesus is much more hopeful than anything else the world has to offer. So let's hold out Jesus to those in our lives. And while many will reject him, let's have hope that others will receive him as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us in the darkness of our lives without hope, but that you've sent your Son. God, help us remember that all throughout the year, but especially at Christmas. Give us an incredible hope that is good news for our lives here on earth and good news for our future eternity with you. God, help us believe that and to hold that out to our friends and family in our city this Christmas and this next year. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.